Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first day of shooting for Beowulf and Grendel. I'm really excited because I've heard that you've all been working on your old Anglo-Saxon accents. So I'm really excited to hear what you've got for me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I've been practicing in front of the mirror. Oh, yeah, I've been practicing my accent for Royal Maid number two. I say, I don't quite understand this thrall position, but I will do my best with the character, I suppose. Oh, yeah, I totally got, like, this pagan witch down. My god, this is gonna be epic. Hey, you! You're finally awake! Welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my heroic co-hosts. My name is Jack Olander, a Christian monk who apparently has rabies. Don't know how that happened. <laughs> Maybe you were bit by a squirrel? I was bit by the Lord. Oh, God. And I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a pagan witch who just is looking for love. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, uh, this week for the show, we watched Beowulf and Grendel. The 2005 film directed by Sterla Gunnarsson, starring Gerard Butler, Stellan Sarsgaard, Ingvar Sigurdsson, and Sarah Pauly. We have a lot to talk about with this movie. I'm really excited to cover this with you guys because not only did we watch Beowulf and Grendel, but we watched the documentary about the making of the movie called Wrath of Gods, which really gave us new appreciation for the movie itself. But before we get into all those fun details, I think Chelsea has a summary ready to go. That's right. Here's a summary for Beowulf and Grendel. So the movie begins with Hrothgar and his men taking a nice afternoon ride in the Danelands. <laughs> it's a lovely summer or possibly winter day in Iceland. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. In the Danelands. Yeah. My bad. And um, it's circa 500 AD. And this is, of course, the time when trolls still roam the lands. Oh, man. I miss those days. Yeah. So much XP. So Hrothgar and his bullies happen upon a poor troll father and his son. Trollson? Trollson. <laughs> troll father and Trollson. Yes, you know they're trolls because even though they look like humans, they're super beefy and hairy. Yeah, oh, dude, even the kid has, like, a beard that I would be very jealous of. Yeah. So, and by would be, I mean was. Uh, we got to see it firsthand. The trolls didn't do anything to those Danish humans. Uh, and they just fucking killed that father yeah, for being a troll. Cold-blooded. And the boy was hiding. Hrothgar saw him, but decided to spare him, and that's what spelled his doom. Well, I mean, not his doom. As a good kin. Oh, sure, but I mean, he survives. Grendel just kills all of his people. Yeah, so Jamie's jumping the gun a little bit here. But, <laughs> uh, so, cut to, like, 20 years later, or something like that. Grendel's all grown up, 
and he's making some trouble for Hrothgar and his hall, and he just decides to seek revenge for the death of his father and starts killing all of Hrothgar's warriors because he's super swole, basically like a gorilla. So yeah, nobody can really stand up to him, especially if they're passed out drunk. Yeah, that's like the worst time to fight is when you're passed out drunk, I imagine. Yeah, so Beowulf and his men hear of Hrothgar's troubles and make their way to the Danelands from Geatland to try to help rid them of this scourge. They have a few run-ins with Grendel where he's toying with them, kind of, you know, dissing them, peeing on the beer hall. He totally yeets those geats. There you go. <laughs> and um, they have a few run-ins. What They try to retaliate and smash Grendel's father's skull that he keeps in the cave as a memento. Dick move. Brekka? Yeah. No, it wasn't Brekka. It was the other guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was the dude who was also in the 13th Warrior as uh, the musician with the tattooed face. Yeah. The Post Malone of 13th Warrior. He knew what he did. As soon as he smashed that skull, the look on his face spelled doom. He knew that he was done for. Um, that night, Grendel comes in and kills just him and then escapes, even though he's been trapped by Beowulf. Because Grendel just fucking cuts off his own arm to get away. With a spear. Yep. Like, he does the poking method. <laughs> he pontalists his arm off. So he runs to the sea, and this is the first time we get to see his mother as she, well, maybe we realize now that it's his mother because she's a sea hag, and she had been trying to grab people earlier in the movie to bring them down under the water to a watery death. A watery grave, oh, as it were. One of the worst types of deaths or graves. And uh, we didn't know what was attacking people, and we find out it was Grendel's mother. And so she carries him to a, her sea cave home to die peacefully. And uh, He's earned that. Beowulf wants to make sure Grendel is no more, so he makes his way to the sea cave, follows the trail of blood, and finds the dead body there and is attacked by Grendel's mother. He's not able to use his sword in the fight, but he finds another one conveniently uh, staked into the sand and draws it out and just slashes her across the belly, winning the fight. It was kind of a short-lived moment. And this is when Beowulf finds out that Grendel had his own son, and his son comes to try to fight Beowulf and... Beowulf is just like, nah. <laughs> yeah, he's done enough troll killing for one afternoon. And I guess he hasn't even... Well, no, he killed the sea hag. He didn't technically kill Grendel. It was like... he. I guess he gets the assist on that one. Yeah. And um, we find out that the local witch, Selma, was the mother of the, Grendel's son. They had gotten it on at some point before. And uh, they seem that we are unfortunately shown in horrific detail. Yeah, they didn't need to fucking do that. Anyway. Um, it's like for all the hardship they went through filming this movie, couldn't they have just cut that scene? Like that would have saved them like $70,000 of shooting. And our, our eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so Selma and her son watch on a rock as Beowulf and his men leave Daneland for their home, never to return. And Good riddance. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they're thinking good riddance to bad rubbish. But you get the impression that the cycle of violence is not going to continue because before, right before they left, Beowulf decided to honor Grendel and give him a grave, a seaside grave. It's the one thing his father could never have. And uh, that's it for your summary. Excellent. Well, with that taken care of, I think it's time to head to the delve. This is the delve where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, lore, and making of, especially making of for this movie, Beowulf and Grendel. So do we want to talk a little bit about the lore? I so want to talk about the lore because um, I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the poem that this is based on and uh, some of the other like film versions. So I'm, I'm super excited to get into this movie. Why don't you start it off for us then? So, yeah, I mean, this movie is based on, uh, you know, the epic poem Beowulf, which is the oldest piece of Anglo-Saxon literature, which basically makes it more or less the oldest piece of English writing that we have. I mean, you know, very old English. But Was it that it was recorded in the 8th century, but it's from the 6th century? I think that sounds right. I'm not great at remembering dates. It's something along those lines. Something though. like that. And it, it was recorded later because the Viking culture was an oral tradition. Right. And the story itself has been Christianized, which are the common thing that is you know, especially back at this time period or around this time period, something that was done to stories. They put this overlay of either commentary. It was kind of like, um, it was kind of like editorializing for the time. Whoever was recording this stuff, usually monks and stuff who were Christians and literate would make alterations to the story. And a lot of times they don't really track very well, like within the internal logic so they might refer to a culture that was not actually Christianized at that time that had not uh, learned of Christianity yet or had been converted yet and say that they were Christians, even though that, you know, from a historical point of view, that would be impossible. Or they would put this kind of commentary where it's like, hey, check out what these dumbass pagans used to think. These guys are a bunch of clowns. We know what's really up. We've got our God. And that's really the truth. But check out this crazy shit that these uh, Danes said. That's kind of what happens in Beowulf. They refer to, like, Grendel as um, marked by Cain, associating him with, you know, Cain of the Bible, the first murderer of the Bible. And they kind of make reference to that at the end of this movie in a scene that I really like, where... One of the skaldic characters is trying to kind of create a epic poem out of what they've done. And the other character, one of the other characters is just like, what the fuck are you talking about? None of what you're saying makes any sense. This is crazy. Like, we, we're all murderers. Why are you saying that he's so bad and, and all this stuff? It's like, OK, I really appreciated that. But so what this movie does is kind of adapts parts of the story while also creating a sympathetic perspective for Grendel, giving us a little bit more backstory about the character. We see his father being killed, for example. Yeah, in the poem, he just hated hearing the merrymaking. They were 
the humans were disturbing his existence. It also updates the story by adding a few female characters, like Selma, the pagan witch, who is not in the Beowulf story. It creates a view of Beowulf that is a bit more grounded. He doesn't seem like he's necessarily the superhero that he appears to be throughout the poem. A major change I felt was that in the movie, Beowulf kills Grendel's mother or the sea hag using a sword. And that is something in the epic poem that never actually works. Weapons always fail Beowulf in the story, and he ends up having to use his bare hands and his wits to conquer his foes. Yeah, there's some kind of message of purity there where it's more on even terms with a natural force that he's fighting. Right. It's a rejection of technology of the time. Exactly. So I wasn't sure how I felt about them changing that in the film, but at the end of the day, the themes of the film are pretty different from the themes of the poem. Yeah, they are. Uh, They didn't have the theme of rejecting technology in the movie like the poem does. It was more about a cycle of violence. Right. That was more what the film was focused on. And how it can be perpetuated and possible pathways to end it. And they kind of just showed you that. And some of the... Yeah, we can get into that. Um, So, cycles of violence kind of continue because people... It, it's, it has to do with feuding. So people on either side can both claim uh, the right for revenge or to get payback for some wrong that has been committed by the other side in a feud. And this can be perpetuated at many different levels uh, or different scales, I'll say, whether it's, you know, small bands of people or even just two individuals up to nations. So this type of violent feuding and damage being committed by either side locks people or kind of binds people in a cycle of violence. And um, both sides kind of feel like continuing this cycle puts them in the right, that they have a right to continue meeting out revenge and seeking retribution for the wrongs that have been done to them without really reviewing ways to end it or thinking about what position they're putting themselves in and committing other people that they're connected to what they're committing them to. Right. If a, say, if in the context of the film, a king like Hrothgar starts this violent feud with the trolls, then his subjects later, or the people who are part of his nation later, will suffer for it when Grendel retaliates against them years later. Yeah. That's definitely right. And I thought Grendel's retribution, I wanted to quickly mention, I thought was pretty unique. Because when Hrothgar killed his father with a band of other Vikings... Hrothgar was the only person in that raiding group that saw Grendel dangling off the edge of the cliff, and when he decided to spare him, it seemed like Grendel, to a degree, was going to spare Hrothgar in turn, even though he was seeking out revenge on Hrothgar for the death of his dad. So it appears that Grendel had some sort of interesting troll honor. Yeah, and we see that later when that one Geet who's with Beowulf who smashes 
Grendel's father's skull. When Grendel retaliates, he only comes to seek revenge against that one man and then tries to escape. He doesn't try to fight or harm, like, uh, kill, at least, anybody else who didn't do him wrong. Yeah, Grendel is definitely acting in a way that he thinks is equivalent to what has happened to him. He is doing something in retaliation, like Chelsea was saying. And that's keeping in the tradition of bringing in Christian ideas into this epic, because the idea of an eye for an eye, it uh, comes from the Bible. And there is also the Ware Guild in Norse cultures, where a death has to be repaid with a death, and, you know, like paid for like. Well, is it a death, or is it a repayment of some kind? I guess that's true. A lot of times it was literally a gold price for a life. Every so, every life had a gold piece value or a gold weight value. Okay, yeah, maybe gold or other goods of some kind, maybe livestock, maybe sometimes it might be exchanging somebody in the family of the person who did the killing over to the other family to replace the loss they had. True, yeah. But so that person becomes a member of the other family who lost their kin. Right. Weir Guild literally means man price, but or man gold, but yeah. Yeah. It it, it can be worked out differently. It's just the way that we you know, we use money in different or different types of exchange and currency. It's very interesting uh that a society would adopt those rules. Speaking of societal rules, to tie it back to Grendel a little bit and his idea of perhaps some sort of honorable retribution, he got this idea, assumedly from his dad. It doesn't seem like his mom talks, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not, not clear. Yeah. Not Maybe they clear. can communicate in some way, but we don't see that in the film. Screeching. <laughs> Classic. Yes. Grendel but. can speak, just very simple words. Yes, or a little more complex when he's speaking in whatever foreign language he speaks. The subtitles just say foreign language, so we, <laughs> you know, say what you will about that. But it seemed like Grendel had some sort of at least very basic understanding of social graces, because when... The scene happens that Chelsea mentioned where Grendel comes to Hrothgar's mead hall and the warriors are waiting for him inside. He kind of knows that something is up. He can smell it. He has a great sense of smell. He decides to piss on the door because he thinks it would be a funny joke. And you have to kind of understand that that's not a nice thing to do in order to make a funny by doing it on purpose. Yeah, and then the next day we see the Vikings having to scrub up the uh, troll urine from the threshold. Yes, it makes me wonder, and I kind of would have liked to have known a bit more of the lore, though I doubt we ever will, on how Grendel or Grendel's dad knew so much about, like, etiquette for interacting with other people, how they made their clothing and stuff, and, like, designed their house. There's interior decorating and stuff like that. There must be some sort of society they've lived in or been in relation with. Well, Grendel seems to be wearing old tatters of, like, chainmail that he probably took from Vikings that he killed, and probably... Scraps of tunic or trousers that he just pilfered from whoever he was killing. Yeah, it's true. But he also speaks that foreign language. True. Yeah. It's probably so, like English or something. Yeah. 
And Selma is able to understand him, the pagan witch. Yeah, Grendel seems to be repeating the same words over and over again, and then Selma is translating it in full sentences. So maybe it's something in his tone or pattern of speaking that she's able to translate. I don't know. That part was a little... The way that that was shot was a little confusing. They're both... They're related to Wookiees. Yeah. Could be that, yeah. Sarawak? Yeah. Yeah. They're both on the fringes of society, and they kind of have a camaraderie through their outsider-ness. Right. Now, I was going to mention when we were talking earlier about retribution and the escalation of violence, Selma tells Beowulf, point blank, she's a seer. She's cast bones... She claims to know the future. She knows when Grendel will die, when Beowulf will die. She says that if Beowulf kills Grendel, the Danes will suffer for it. Now, that might not be a prediction of the future. That might be knowing what she knows, having given birth to Grendel's son, that the cycle of violence will continue. But that is an important message, I think, of the film that she is saying to us, the audience, that the escalation of violence will only will often only be met with greater violence. Yeah, and I, when we were watching the film, I kind of thought that it was also a message about um, the destruction of nature. Okay. Because Grendel and his father are close to the land. They kind of live off of the land. They don't really have a... They're not of civilization. So they are kind of equated to a natural force. Right. I mean, a lot of the Vikings in this movie die of natural causes for Vikings, which is killed by troll. Yeah. (laughs) The most natural of Viking deaths. Yeah. It's kind of like the inability to fight against a natural force much like what was happening to the cast and crew while they were trying to (laughs) film this in Iceland. Let's definitely get into it. (laughs) So you can see why that crept into the theme of the movie because they were having to deal with all kinds of trials and trepidations during filming in the fall in Iceland. They filmed in September and October. Oof. And they had been planning on filming in the summer, but delays in pre-production and particularly financing kept them from being able to start sooner. You know, I just figured it out, though. At first, I was like, oh, man, it's too bad that these guys didn't have Thor's blessing. But what if all the storms was just Thor coming down to watch the filming? And he's like, guys, why aren't you filming? I, I came to watch you. I'm right here bringing my thunder and lightning and storm. Why aren't you making the damn movie? Yeah, and we found out uh, through watching the documentary that they had a pagan blessing for the film at the start, which we thought was really cool. They thought it didn't work. I think it may have worked too well. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what the director was saying. He was like, no, I don't think it was a curse. I think the ritual was totally a success. Imagine if all the bad stuff that happened had gone worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, there were multiple car crashes. Nobody died. There were, you know, hurricane-sized winds. The meat hole didn't even collapse <laughs> when other buildings did. I think it was a win. Yeah, Sterla is a real bright sider. <laughs> But he did have a point there. I mean, and then he started to get superstitious. He was like, this film has made me really superstitious. Well, he said Iceland in in particular. Yeah, that's true. Maybe people are superstitious there. I mean, everybody's superstitious. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those landscapes and environments that really inspire people to awe and kind of stand in awe of what nature can do. I mean, you know, a volcano erupted nearby when they were filming this movie. Yeah, and the winds were going so, were blowing so heavily. It was 50 to 70 miles per hour. Like, it was hurling cars, taking the roofs off of buildings, hurling rocks through the air so you couldn't even be on the set where they had built the meat hall on top of a hill. Yeah, and I thought what was so cool was the actor who played Grendel, who speaks only Icelandic, right, as far as I can tell, he was talking about how, you know, I'm really shocked how, like, upset a lot of the cast and crew are about this. This sort of storm is like a blessing. It's like, it's a good challenge for the crew. And I mean, they're trying to film in Iceland for this like Scandinavian movie. This should be perfect. Right. I know. Yeah, this should get everyone in the right mindset. And I thought that was so good. Yeah, I loved what he said in that moment too where he was saying they are seeing the weather as their enemy, but they should be seeing it as their friend. If you start out by thinking that the elements are your enemy, then you've already lost. Yeah. I was, I was just like, yes, that is so great. Yeah, and it really fits well with the theme of the movie, too. And, yeah. and Chelsea, your point about Grendel being a force of nature. Yeah, and I think that they drew upon their real-world challenges of dealing with all of these natural forces uh, to kind of have Grendel embody that in the film. And they are shown a path out of this cycle of violence, too. And it's when Beowulf listens to Selma, who's also close to the land and understands it, much like the actor who, as Jack was saying, the actor who played Grendel did, that you need to learn from your challenges and your mistakes. And she tells him that, did you learn nothing from Hrothgar's plight? Right. And after she kind of points that out to Beowulf, he realizes that if he doesn't want retribution to be brought down on himself, he needs to honor his enemy and see him as a friend and, and give him a burial and, and mourn for him as a friend. And so in a way, he makes peace with the natural forces of the land. Yes, definitely. I thought that was a really cool transformation for Beowulf. Going from this guy who was kind of upset with the situation and kind of just wanting to get it over with as quick as possible to being this guy who really appreciated everything around him and was super honoring and respecting of all this sacred tradition and land around him. I thought that was really cool because in the documentary, it seemed that the actor for Beowulf, Gerard Butler, went through the exact same transformation. Yeah. Yeah, I really because, did. Yeah. A first few days into filming it, he was like, chainmail is not good for the cold. It, the wind blows right through you from the North Pole. There's no escaping it <laughs> and you want to die. I was trekking through the mud and it fatigued me instantly. This movie is tough to film, and I it just made me realize I'm not Beowulf. Yeah, yeah. he was like, he I hate this job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then at the end, he was like, Iceland is a very sacred place. Yeah. It's very primal. 
and around every bend, a few weeks apart can be completely different. The stones are so unique in the ocean and the beaches change. This place is unlike any other. I was like, oh, he's he just went through the Beowulf transformation. Yeah, and he was saying that he like grew close with everybody and he actually really appreciated the challenges they all went through together at the end, like you were saying, Jack. And um, it really gave me a different perspective about the movie and the experience they went through too. The real hardship was the friends they made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> It was a true adventure, you know? Uh, adventure isn't cushy. It's not safe or peaceful. Nope, Bilbo had to learn that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, you know, a day in Hobbiton. It's a day on Mount Doom, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and they got the taste of that. Yeah. There was a volcano erupting near where they were shooting. <laughs> oh, good point. I like um, something that is connected to what we're talking about here. After Beowulf talks to Selma and gets this new perspective, he goes to Hrothgar with new new perspective and says, do you see Grendel killing children or women or old people? No, it's only warriors. He only kills people who kill other people. Kind of reinforcing this idea that he is both a force of nature and revenge against those who commit violence. And he is part of this cycle. and. Beowulf coming to that conclusion through talking to Selma, I thought was a really interesting feature of the movie or theme of the movie. Yeah, I thought that scene was a good example of dramatic irony. You know, just how Grendel's father was killed, so he sought out revenge, and then revenge was sought out against Grendel, and then Beowulf ends up killing him, and he's the dad of this other young demi-troll. And it's kind of like the cycle continuing the way we mentioned. But there are a lot of other scenes in the film that display dramatic irony. Like, for example, when they first finish building the Mead Hall for Hrothgar and they sanctify it with their pagan ritual. And Hrothgar goes up to the doorway and makes a speech to his people. He says, may all who pass through these doors like have a happy heart or something Along those lines. And of course, if you know the Beowulf story at all, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work out. <laughs> and then Grendel pisses on the threshold and, oh, and, and, and violates the sanctity of Hrothgar's home. Yeah. Makes him feel unsafe in his own hall, leading to this downward spiral that Hrothgar is feeling where he doesn't know what to do. He feels trapped in his own home and unable to protect the people that are expecting him to lead them. Right. It's true. Another example of irony in the movie, I think, is when Selma convinces Beowulf that Grendel is more than he seems. Beowulf is going to give him a chance, but one of his fellow warriors has already kind of desecrated Grendel's home. Grendel, of course, comes that night to kill the man like we described. Horribly. And, yes, and Grendel jumps off a balcony after getting kind of lassoed around the arm right before he cuts his arm off. Beowulf is standing there like he was ready to kill him, but is second-guessing. Yeah, that's a good point. now he's realizing, you know, Selma was right. Grendel is more than he seems. He's intelligent and he has this form of honor. And when it looks like that he is going to give Grendel the benefit of a doubt, give him a chance, Grendel kills himself by cutting his arm off and, like, bleeding out in the ocean. 
So the second he's given a chance to survive, he dies. Yeah. Another yeah. natural Viking death. Yes, cutting your arm off. <laughs> well, it's almost like Beowulf wanted to kind of let the natural force take its course, but he also was kind of bound to human laws and honor and what was expected of him from his own people. And so sometimes I think that people want to do right by nature or other nature beings, but they feel bound to a certain code or norm of their culture like in the u.s here there's this norm that you know you kind of have to make money or your success is dependent upon how much money you make and it ignores our place in nature and how we're dependent on nature and i definitely felt that theme in the movie in especially in that scene where Beowulf feels conflicted between his cultural upbringing and then his own personal realization and appreciation for his place in the world and that humans aren't the only ones that deserve a place in the world. That's a great point. Yeah. And that actually ties back to the very subtle theme of class struggle that I detected in this movie. Okay. It's not just with Grendel being a marginalized person amongst the Danes. Beowulf is also in a lower class to some extent. He's friends of Hrothgar. He might be related to the king, but he is a tool for more powerful people to push around. He is a pawn. And this doesn't really show up until the end of the movie when he is leaving and they ask Beowulf where he's going to go next. And he says, I'm going to go wherever I'm sent. He was sent to Hrothgar's Mead Hall to fight against Grendel. He has a little bit of autonomy because he's created a name for himself. But at the end of the day, he is not a powerful ruler. Now, I don't know if that's a change from the poem where Beowulf eventually becomes king of this land, I think. Or unless he's king of another. It's been a while since I've read Beowulf. He becomes Beowulf. king of... Uh... Of a different a small kingdom. small kingdom in Geatland somewhere. Okay. But so he has not at that point yet. We never see that in this movie where he becomes a powerful ruler. We're only seeing him as kind of, again, this pawn that's being pushed around, told what to do. He's speaking to Hrothgar. Hrothgar is not giving him a lot of credence. He's not valuing what Beowulf has to offer him other than the violence he can enact against Hrothgar's enemies. Yeah. That line I thought was especially clever because it was also a double meaning for the religious struggle in the film. Thank you. I wanted to get into that. What, let's, let's talk about it. Yes. Well, no surprise because we've already mentioned it. And it's a theme in every Viking show or movie is the Christianization of the pagans. Yes. And in this film, they start losing hope against the troll Grendel a lot, and their faith in the gods is shaken to its core, and a complete lunatic Irish monk is there who foams at the mouth. He's so passionate about Jesus, and he passes out mid-sentence. Hey, have you heard the good news? Oh, yeah. Oh, I've heard it. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I obviously love when we Christians are portrayed like that. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you love it as much as I love how pagans are often portrayed in media that cast us as serial killers and cultists. 
<laughs> yeah, classic. <laughs> so, well, I think kind of both of those are actually portrayed in this film. Yeah, I don't think the movie takes a strong stance one way or the other. Which I appreciate quite a bit. And I think one of the coolest parts about it is King Hrothgar at one point himself gets baptized in Christianity and he walks around wearing a cross and Thor's hammer. And he's like, I'll take all the help I can get. I thought that was clever. Yeah, yeah. And then he's kind of worried about it a little bit because it seems like in general, he's pretty weary of the gods. Because he often wants their blessing, but he's like, I have no idea if I get their blessing, if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Because we keep praying and bad stuff keeps happening. Much like the issues that happened during the filming of the movie. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the times during the filming, they kept being like, oh, it feels like a troll has actually cursed our production. Yeah, yeah, with the weather, with hurricane winds and just violent storms coming through when it was just clear and beautiful the day before and them being locked out of uh being able to work at all it just i can see why they thought that (laughs) yeah and one of the beaches they would be filming on and need to film more scenes on after a storm would just be gone the entire beach and they would have to move to a beach that was somewhere else (laughs) yeah that was yeah. crazy. That's wild. Yeah, the the sheer force of nature, as we have said repeatedly, really was highlighted not only in the themes of the film, but in the creation of the film as well. Yeah. Yes, Jamie told me once never to piss off a druid because this is what happened. That's right. <laughs> More on that for our patrons in our bonus episode. <laughs> nice. Yes, I love it. So um, I'm glad you mentioned the religious aspect for another reason, because it goes back to the themes we're talking about. Something that's important that happens, Father Brendan, who's the Christian monk, feels that he's safe from Grendel because God is protecting him. And there's a scene, the scene where Grendel comes and pisses on the threshold. Just before he does that, Brendan is praying and Grendel comes up behind him and kind of sniffs him and then walks away. And Brendan feels like, oh, I was protected by God. We kind of get the sense that the real reason is that Brendan wasn't violent. So that's why, as a non-warrior, Grendel doesn't bother hurting him. But after Grendel is killed, when the sea hag comes to exact revenge on Hrothgar's people, she spares no one. She kills Father Brendan immediately, as soon as he walks as soon as she walks up to him. So we now see how the violence that was originally only killing warriors is now spilling over and hurting people who are not connected to the war in any way. So we're seeing how violence in war often goes and hurts people other than the warriors that are fighting that war. Yeah. Yeah, she fucking balked Father Brendan, dude. He was stumbling out of the meat hole, drunk as a skunk, and then she just, like, walks past him does a wild swing of her arm just off to the side, not even really looking, and his head just 180s the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, oh, it's going down. The only issue I take with what you've said is that I think he was drunk as a monk. <laughs> Holy Toledo. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, do we want to say anything else about the content of the film? Oh, maybe one thing. In addition to... The monk that is a little wacky. 
we have talked about the character Selma a little bit. And she is a woman with very strong beliefs. Beliefs so strong, they got her kind of kicked out of society, right? One of her abilities that allows her to see the way that people die made people kind of weary of her and they pushed her away. But she kind of lived a very long, difficult life full of turmoil. Well, the other and, the other reason she was uh, kicked out of society is that people thought she killed her husband, who was like a king or something. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Or maybe but, he wasn't a king, because if he was a king and she killed him, she'd probably be dead. He was like a wealthy landowner. There we go. But her character was a little confusing, because she was kind of supposed to be an oracle who didn't want to talk about prophecy a lot, which right. I thought was interesting, because... She clearly had very strong opinions and didn't want to share them. So Beowulf would go to her pretty often and be like, hey, you clearly don't want me to kill Grendel. Do you want to, like, pitch an argument why I shouldn't do it? And she's just like, no matter what I say, it won't change the way he dies. And I'm just like, oh, you're so BM. But that also does fit pretty well with the idea of, say, the Norns in Norse mythology and this idea that, for example, Odin can see the future, but he can't really change it. He can try in subtle ways to manipulate the outcomes, but at the end of the day, he knows that there's nothing he can really do to change the things that are fated to happen. And it's Prophecy is often seen as both a blessing and a curse because of those reasons. You you are given the ability to see what's coming, but you can't alter it in any significant way. Definitely. And Beowulf actually mentions that in a line where she was like, don't you want to know how you're going to go, Beowulf? He's like, there are some things I would prefer to be blind going into. And I thought that was a great line. And just because we haven't mentioned it yet, I, w I did want to point out that Selma is played by Sarah Polly, who I'm sure many of our listeners will remember as the little girl from The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, one of the great films of American history. Yeah, I was so stoked when I found out about that. Uh, usually I'm pretty good at recognizing people's faces, even over time. But for some reason, I just couldn't place her. I knew she was familiar. And then when she mentioned working on the set of Baron Munchausen in the making of this movie, I was just floored. I was I I saw it right away and I I was stoked to find that out and know it was her. Okay, well at this point I think we can figure out if the antagonist of this movie was evil, stupid, or misunderstood. So this is evil, stupid, or misunderstood, the part of the show where we take a look at the antagonist and determine if they were misunderstood, or maybe they were evil, or maybe just stupid. So guys, let's talk about Grendel. I don't think he's the villain of the movie. I think that the villain of the movie is... Uh, lack of communication. <laughs> yeah, lack of communication and misunderstanding. It's kind of a recurring villain in our podcast and many movies, but it actually kind of is interesting how it's formed a cinematic universe, I think, how society is the villain. 
I'm not surprised. And systemic violence that's meted out against the unempowered or the disenfranchised fringe groups. Like yeah. the trolls in this movie. <laughs> Good point. I think society really is the villain here. Yeah. And society's stupid. We already know that, so. We've established that in earlier episodes. Yeah. yeah. I'd say uh, stupid and misunderstood, for yeah. sure. I mean, I think sometimes evil. Yeah. yeah. That's society for you. When When society lets itself be led down dark paths by charismatic but otherwise weak and cowardly leaders, we get the types of results that we saw in this movie. I mean, look at Hrothgar. He kind of sees himself as this strong, powerful figure, but the reality is he's just as lost as anybody else. And if anything, him having the power to deal out death sentences only negatively impacts the people around him. Yeah. I mean, what stronger class sentiment and and narrative could we have than this film? Mm-hmm. When cycles of violence are perpetuated because people are blindly and perhaps stupidly just moving forward without questioning the status quo, it's pretty stupid and can be evil. <laughs> but it's often based on a misunderstanding by those people of the power structures around them. Right. Or by the inability, because of systemic violence and such, of them to fight back against it in any meaningful way. I mean, Beowulf was supposed to be kind of beloved by Hrothgar, right? But Hrothgar wouldn't even listen to him. Why would he listen to his common soldiers? Right. It was a rigged game from the start. You know, he had to ring-a-ding do it to him. <laughs> but I right. think it's about time for us to head into the smithy. This is the Smithy, where we forge a rating for the movie after we each share an epic moment or feature. Jack, why don't you tell us an epic moment or feature from the movie and then give us your rating in 1 to 10 Viking broadswords. I go first. Holy. Well, I'll start with my epic moment. There's a scene where Beowulf and Hrothgar are later in the film enjoying themselves, kind of reveling in what appears to be a happy moment. And all the soldiers are having a good time, bonding. And Hrothgar and Beowulf start talking about some of the other kings when Hrothgar is kind of trying to cheer himself up. He's like, you know, I'm not the worst king there is. And then Beowulf is like, yeah, I definitely agree. And they're rattling off some of the quirky... Uh, things that other kings have like they start civil wars amongst their men or you know things like that but one of them whose name escapes me at the moment they rattle through a list of deviant sexual acts yes that they yeah basically they stole a clipboard from a zoologist right and they were just like and he has sex with this animal and this one and that one and they're just laughing the whole time. And they're like, oh, you know, if we go to war with him, we could probably just release some squirrels on the battlefield and he would get distracted. And I was just like, this is the best dialogue in the entire movie, in maybe most movies. <laughs> I, I loved that moment. 
And I was just like, this is what we needed from this movie that's trying to make a serious point about circling violence. <laughs> and uh, I just loved that moment. But <laughs> originally, I was going to give this movie six Viking broadswords out of ten because I think it's a good time. It's a little bit better than an average fantasy movie because it puts a very good spin on a classic tale. Not every classic tale needs to just be a perfect recreation of the original myth. It can have its own spin on it. And I think this one stayed true to the original feel of Beowulf while doing something unique and different. All the characters, for the most part, were very compelling. I can see how one event led to another really nicely. Some of the cuts, like you mentioned, were kind of choppy, but I think that had to do with the weather after watching the documentary. So originally I was going to go with the six, but the documentary actually enhanced it so much for me. I'm going to give it an extra sword and a half and bump it up to seven and a half. I was going to settle for seven, but my heart demanded that point five. You have to follow your heart. Yes. So the troll in me gave it that extra point and a half. Seven and a half broadswords. Right. What about you, Chelsea? My epic moment is the pagan blessing that they gave to Hrothgar before they entered his mead hall for the first time. I love seeing that in the film and them portraying a simple pagan ceremony that looked like it would, to me, be close to what they might have really done, uh, which was just blessing somebody with a bowl today it would be water but in the past uh they would have used blood for sure as a type of consecration look like a freshly killed lamb or yeah ram it was ram and um they used a spruce sprig to sprinkle the blood on people to bless them and make uh blood it was called blooding them lucky and um i thought that was a really neat scene and there was singing as well which is often in ceremonies and it was mirrored by the real pagan blessing that they got that they showed part of in the documentary in the making of this film. So that was my epic moment. I thought that was really neat, and it looked pretty realistic to me. Did you want to do an aside, Jack? And I'm going to also give this movie 7 out of 10 Viking swords. Um, you know, I got to be honest. The first time I watched this movie a few years ago, I might have given it probably a 2 or a 3. Uh, because I was picking it apart a bit more. I didn't appreciate, uh, back then, like, what it took to make a film. And I didn't appreciate what is there in film language like I do and, and how we discuss things on this show. And so my perspective is definitely different now. And I focus more on what is there. And so instead of what it's missing. So, um, I definitely appreciated it a lot more this time and it it definitely got another an extra point from that making of film from me too because i really appreciated what they had to go through to make this film and it did make the editing the awkward editing make a lot more sense and i i kind of want to give them a little bit of a pass for that because it was out of their control that's fair so yeah, seven out of ten Viking swords. I I want to give them that because I appreciate what they were going for, which was an epic film. How about you, Jamie? Oh, I'm glad you asked. My epic moment is another uh, one that is just 
kind of people reveling and kind of doing their thing. I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional comedy, but in one of the first scenes when they're in the hall and Hrothgar's talking about the things that have been going on and the violence of Grendel and everything, explaining it out of the Beowulf, he says, and over there are the widows of the men who were killed and like they're coping with the deaths of their husbands and they shoot to this, um, they pan over to these young women who are just smiling and laughing and drinking and kind of like flirting with other warriors there and looks like they're having a good old time. And I was like, wow, they really got over the <laughs> violent death of their husbands very quickly. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's that uh, Viking fatalism that I talked about in the How to Train Your Dragon episode. Like, they were just so happy that their husbands went to Valhalla that they had no qualms with just moving on and looking for love again. So, again, I don't know if that was an intentional bit of comedy or just a little bit that I got out of it. But that was definitely one of my favorite moments of the movie. You guys, I think we're always in lockstep with a lot of these movies. I was going to give this movie a six until we watched the documentary, and that pushed it up to a seven for sure. These folks busted their asses, fought against God and logic and reason and probably common decency <laughs> to create this movie to bestow upon us like a gift. Before Gerard Butler was known as the great Greek king Leonidas. Yeah. Before Stellan Sarsgaard was the scientist in Thor, we had this movie bringing together this mad vision of Sterla Gunnarsson, who just used his unending optimism, which I will admit is sometimes a bit overbearing for some people. But from him, I just had to watch him in that documentary and go, ah, fuck it, man. Like, Get on with your crazy self. Make that goddamn movie. You made the shit out of that movie. And while we were watching, I was like, man, these edits are bad. And I really thought that that was going to bring down my rating. But now that I know why the edits must have been so bad, I'm giving it a pass. Seven Viking swords. Locked, signed, sealed, and plunged into the shoulder of a troll, even though that was a spear. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's all I can say about this movie. It's just wow. Yeah. Why don't we head over to the bounty board? The wind howls as you look out over the cliffs upon the frozen fjords. Each gust feels like daggers cutting through your flesh. Your mind is weary from the many hours you've spent on guard duty, waiting on this old watchtower waiting for any sign of danger to come. Then, out in the distance, you see glowing runes begin to form in your vision. They read, Bounties? Well, guys, this week we want to tell you about Monster Train. What is Monster Train? I'm glad you asked. Monster Train is a strategic, roguelike deck-building game with a twist. I like deck-building games. And I love roguelikes. And I like trains. It's like the perfect game for the three of us. Sounds awesome. So Monster Train is set on a train to hell. Oh, even better. You use tactical decision making to defend multiple vertical battlegrounds. And there's nothing we know like battlegrounds here at Swords and Satire. And being vertical. With real-time competitive multiplayer and endless replayability, Monster Train is always on time. And it's available on Steam, so go check out Monster Train. 
Nice. We'd also like to give a shout out to our bestest of friends and newest of patrons, Mickey Marin and Casey Cannon, for supporting us on Patreon and getting access to all of the sweet exclusive content that patrons can get for supporting us. Yeah, thanks, guys. We hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah. We love you. We do. We three. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to help support the show, head on over to Patreon slash Swords and Satire. Check out all the awesome proficiencies you can earn for supporting us and get access to all the sweet bonus content, like special episodes and backer-only polls so you can help decide what movies we watch. That's right. All right, are you guys ready to rewrite some history? You know it. Oh, yeah. So this is Rewriting History. This is the part of the podcast where we discuss an idea for a sequel or a reboot or a spinoff or a crossover for... Beowulf and Grendel. So guys, I thought we could talk about what this movie might have been like if it hadn't been plagued by so many problems during production. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to start out by wondering what could have happened if they had more funding or if the funding had come through before the end of the production. That would have been nice to see. So what some one thing that I would like to have seen them do was to give uh, get voice coaches for everyone so they have some kind of consistency of accent. Hey, look, if Kevin Costner didn't do it for Robin Hood, <laughs> what are the odds it would have happened here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's something to that. Um, I think that they could have fleshed out the movie a little bit more to match the epic tone they were going for, right? They kept saying how they were trying to make an epic. And in a lot of ways, they did. But this is a short epic at an hour and 40 minutes. One of the greatest epic stories of all time, Lord of the Rings. How do they make it seem epic? Countless hours of walking and landscape. And they had some pretty wild changing landscape around them. They could have been filming those brutal storms, adding those scenes. You don't even need to pay actors for that. Yeah. Just get Thor's help. Yeah. Funding is key for this stuff. So they could have built more of a village around the hall. The way they had it, it was like they had these tiny huts that maybe could only fit one person in them or something. Yeah, it just had a little bit of... a discontinuity between this like grand hall and these little huts it's like well how does how does this village support Hrothgar's mead hall when the people are living in this kind of squalor now maybe that could be viewed as a important part of the class struggle but that's not really a theme that overtly comes out in the movie so I would have liked to have seen some more homesteads kind of established places like that yeah it would and make give us a clear idea of what kind of economy these people have that's supporting them? Are they pastoralists? You know, do they have different herds that they keep and that's their primary commodity? Are they beer farmers? <laughs> uh, honey keepers, you know, for mead and honey. Very important. What did I say? Beekeepers. <laughs> I, I like honey keepers too. <laughs> that's great. In the scene where they were coming to the realization that Grendel only kills warriors and spares the farmers and stuff, 
it might have been neat if with all these homesteads in the movie, they could have had a section of the film where they realize they have no warriors, they're defenseless against the trolls, so last minute they decide to form like a farmer's militia, and then Grendel, like at one point, some of the militiamen notice Grendel, and Grendel can clearly see they're just like tunicked people with pitchforks, and he ignores them. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, and so they're just like, what the heck is happening here? I'd also like to get in a few more scenes that establish Selma and give her a little bit more weight in the movie, get to know her a little bit more. She seems very shoehorned into the movie in a, in some ways. Yeah. She kind of like just disappears for a while. I get that she's living on the outskirts of society, but that doesn't really get established until after we know after we've seen her a few times, it just seems very slapdash. Yeah, I just want to say she talks about people visiting her. I would have liked to have seen one or two of those visits. It could have just been a few minutes of screen time. Well, we saw one of the visits. Well, yeah. I would have liked to have that replaced. And uh, we're talking about where, like, this really uncomfortable scene between her and Grendel. I don't even want to describe it. And it's really unnecessary. They didn't have to have it at all. It doesn't add anything to the film. She could have just told Beowulf what happened, or they didn't have to have that be part of the story. But um, but then you wouldn't have Grendel's son. Yeah, so I, I get what they were going for and, like, how it that kind of helped them, like, fit into their theme of like ending cycles of violence so yeah whatever they didn't have to show this really uncomfortable scene that she could have just told him about it um i don't think showing it added anything to the film yeah definitely they could have replaced it with like a villager maybe even hrothgar going that would have been interesting someone important because we know she can cast runes she can cast bones yeah chelsea's wagging her fingers she knows all about that yeah. So something like that could have been really cool. And if they did want to keep this like uncomfortable, slightly uncomfortable or heavily uncomfortable sexual relationship between Brendel and Selma in the movie, when that scene was happening, I was comparing it to the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the wild demigod Enkidu is brought to civilization by a sacred prostitute. I think if they wanted to keep this romantic relationship between Selma and Grendel in the film, maybe she could have sought him out on purpose after doing a divination and seeing that violence isn't the way, and then kind of tried to, like, form some sort of diplomatic union, and then they both consented to, you know, romantic and sexual activity. Yeah, a little consent would have been great in this movie. Yeah, I would have liked that, especially since it seems like they're friends, so it's weird that they they would start their friendship on through a non-consensual thing like that. Yeah, I think the point of that was she was a child prostitute, they mentioned, and that's kind of supposed to have been just the way her entire life has gone, so perhaps you know, violent acts like that have been normalized for her, unfortunately. That might be, but yes, it was definitely an unfortunate... Uh, I mean, so much of the rest of the movie is revised part, portions of history. I think that you can play with those themes a little bit more. And, like, just the... the I don't want to... We've talked about the scene long enough, but, like, she describes it... And then we see it recounted. Like, we only needed one of those things. She could have just described what happened, and that would have been all it took. Adding the shot of it 
just seemed voyeuristic. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was thinking it didn't add anything. You know, I do have to give props to Beowulf for being okay hooking up with her immediately after she just told him that she hooked up with a troll. Yeah, that's a fair point. Beowulf is woke. Yeah, <laughs> and and she comes on to him. It's her choice to uh, get it on with Beowulf. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah. <gasps> so what else do we want to see? What else do we want to add into the movie with sufficient funding and time? Like I mentioned before, I would like to see some more of Jotunheim. Because at one point when Beowulf and his warriors are seeking out Grendel's cave, they come onto this plateau, this large expanse of fields and tundra. And it's pretty flat with a few hills, but they say, we are in another world. Like, they understand that this is not where they should be. Yeah. And well, it looks like they're looking out onto this glacier when they're saying that. Yeah, definitely. And like I mentioned, it seems like there's some sort of language in these outlands, some sort of society that Grendel and his father understood somewhat. Their mother probably understood it a bit too, though she seemed kind of feral. But I would like to kind of at least get some sort of hint as to the nature of trolls. Because in the film, it seems like there's just somehow a few of them. And yeah. people know generally what their nature is, but we don't know how. That's a great point, and I totally agree. They go to this snowy, whether it's Jotunheim, whether it's just some weird expanse, and then they never go back. Like, you'd think they'd go back. They never go back. That's not where they meet Grendel. They find Grendel's home in some nearby cliffs. So it just, it, it falls flat because they go there, see it looks bad, and then never go back. You know and what? they could have just cut that scene, or with more time and money, could have actually shot out in this area, maybe fought some winter wolves or some other monsters or something there, like done something and learned something by going there. Instead, they just see it sucks and turn, and turn around and go back. There's no stakes. Yeah. I would have loved a scene, and it would kind of have to change the arrangement of scenes in the film, but a scene where... Selma takes Beowulf back to the cliff where they met up with Grendel the first time and they kind of cussed each other out. And there's actually a scene where the three of them speak together and Beowulf is like, I kind of understand that you were wronged and I think you have a sense of nobility and I can respect that from one warrior to another or something like that. But, like, this isn't going to go well. Kind of alluding to the fact that, like, he's aware of this cycle of violence. He's like, we got to just call it here. And Grendel maybe somewhat takes that to heart. And Beowulf thinks that he's kind of soothed things over. And that's why when they get back to the hall, they're celebrating a little bit more. They have that bonding scene. And then... That could be when Grendel gets back home, sees the, his father's desecrated head that was destroyed, and then that hope of peace that he had just gotten is tossed out the window. I think that would make it a little bit more tragic in that scene on the balcony where Beowulf is deciding whether or not to spare Grendel that was in the film would have a bit more weight to it because he was like, we were so close to peace. And now we're here. Even better, Beowulf's men could have gone to Grendel's caves while Beowulf was negotiating because Beowulf left kind of 
his people behind to go meet with Selma, they might not have known. They decide, you know what, Beowulf is going soft. We're going to go find Grendel's cave. They destroy the head of Grendel's father while Beowulf doesn't know. When they tell Beowulf, he is pissed. And he says something along the lines of, this isn't going to end well. Yeah. (laughs) And that's why he's so conflicted, like Jack was talking about when they're fighting on the balcony, because he knows that it wasn't his or Grendel's fault, and the peace they tried to create together could have worked out if it wasn't for the the cycle of violence that they're all trapped in. Yeah, I think that that would have been a more, that would be a more powerful cinching of the themes. Yeah, good all point, Jack. All right, guys. Well, let's go get our funders and producers ready, and and call up Sterla and get on this. But in the meantime, how about a side quest? This is the side quest where we suggest another piece of fantasy media that you can check out after you've watched Beowulf and Grendel and the documentary Wrath of Gods. So, guys, when we're talking about Iceland as this unforgiving force of nature that you have to either understand and appreciate and work with or disregard and feel the wrath of, I couldn't help but think of one of my all-time favorite board games, Spirit Island. Spirit Island is definitely one of my top games of all time. I fucking love this game. It is a reverse colonialism game where instead of being the European colonizers going to an island to take over everything, you are the primal forces of nature working in concert with the natives of the island to repel back the invaders who have come there. It is uh, such an amazing area control board game that is just dripping with theme. I love every bit of the design. It is a gorgeous looking game. You you create this island using these modular tiles. And then for every player, everyone adds another section of the island to create the shared board. And everybody's working together as these spirits. And all the spirits are these awesome ideas like a spread of rampant green or lightning swift strike or the ocean's hungry grasp. And they all are so well designed that any character you play as in the game is almost like playing a totally different board game. Yeah. So that's really what I thought of when we were describing Iceland and hearing how the people who made this movie thought about Iceland. So, yeah, go check it out. Spirit Island, it's a board game, and you can also get the video game version now. Uh, I think it's in early access on Steam. So check it out and have some fun killing a bunch of invaders who are coming to take over your home. Yeah, wreck their shit. (laughs) Well, on that note, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in and listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, maybe jump on over to Apple Podcast and leave us a review because that's a really helpful way for you to let people know that you enjoy the show and you think others should be listening. Another helpful way you can do that is by telling your friends and family about us. And a really helpful thing you can do is head on over to Patreon and shoot us a few dollars a month so you can help us keep the torches lit around here. Yeah. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter 
and join our Facebook group so you can see the memes that we design every week to go along with the movie. And tune in next time when we talk about another fantasy film that is super fun and awesome. But until then, Hail Crumb! Crumb.